No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. Uh, Marilia isn't with us today. Unfortunately, she's traveling through Europe, but we're excited to have with us two very important guests. One is the former press secretary to President Zelensky, Ms. Mandel, and the other is Daniel Hamilton, a senior fellow from the Brookings uh, Institution. So let's bring on uh, Professor Hamilton. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, Professor. Uh, he is the non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Center, uh, on, uh, Center on the United States and Europe. He's president of the Transatlantic Leadership Network and co-leads the United States, Europe, and World Order postdoctoral program at Johns Hopkins University uh, School of Advanced International Studies, uh, probably the best school of its type in the world. So thanks so much for taking time to be with us today, Professor Hamilton. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Uh, let's start with what's, you know, been all over the news for the last couple of days. I, I want to ask you uh, about Russia and uh, uh, what these, these recent changes that uh, uh, President Putin is, uh, uh, you know, claim, considering making. Uh, first is the calling up of reservists. He's calling up 300,000 reservists, which is a larger force than was part of the original invasion. Uh, do you agree with the ambassador of the United States that this is an act of desperation? Well, it is. Um, and um, he is, you know, facing a defeat on the battlefield, uh, which I think was the last thing he anticipated. When they first invaded, you know, in February of this year, they thought they could sort of stroll into Kiev, decapitate the government, and optimally sort of incorporate Ukraine into a new sort of Russian confederation, or at least have a captive neighboring state. Uh, it hasn't worked out that way. It's a grueling, horrific uh, war. Uh, but the Ukrainians have made some, you know, surprising um, successes here recently, and Putin's back on his heels. So that's uh, the important one step he's taken. The other step is coming this week, where... Um, these so-called separatist republics in eastern and southern Ukraine are going to hold ref so-called referenda, which are already managed by the Kremlin, to whether they, uh, you know, secede from Ukraine and become part of 
Russia. Uh, and the Russians then want to use that as a pretext to say if the Ukrainians invade these territories, they're now part of Russia. So Ukraine now invading Russia. Uh, so th- this has been condemned the world over as a sham, uh, but they are proceeding. And this will be happening over, you know, between uh, tomorrow and Sunday. Uh, you'll see this uh, process start. And and referenda, as as you refer to them, this isn't what we think of as a referendum, right? It's not something like, is it similar to what we would do to put something on a ballot and have people vote on it? Well, that's, you know, that's what they say. But, of course, yeah. it's all rigged. And uh, yeah. they already anticipate 90% or more, uh, you know, support for annexation in regions of Ukraine that when they had the real referenda uh, on whether to secede from Russia, all of these areas that are now under Russian occupation all voted massively to leave, the, you know, the Soviet Union, right. to leave Russia and be part of Ukraine. So uh, this is not, there are no international monitors. There's no, you know, this is all being uh, uh, orchestrated by the Kremlin. And, you know, something that really gets me, and maybe you have some insight into this, is the information that we seem to get on the news media here is that, you know, we see pictures of Russians talking about how they have to get the Nazis out of Ukraine. How does this play? How is this really playing in Russia? Are, do you have any sense of, are the Russian people getting tired of this? I mean, uh, there's only been a separation of about 30 years, if I'm correct. And, and lots of Russians have family in Ukraine, don't they? They do. That's part of, you know, what Putin's claim is that, as he has said, you know, he says, quote, Russia, uh, Ukraine is not a real country. And part of his claim is that, um, you know, this is part of the, an integral Russia, Russia of some type that's not in the current borders. He also makes this claim that he has some duty, self-proclaimed duty to protect Russians, um, you know, speakers, ethnic, even no matter what their real citizenship is, no matter where they are, even if they're not in Russian territory. He speaks of the, the Ruski Mir, the Russian world, which is not does not coincide with Russia's borders, and that he has some right to intervene across those borders to so-called protect these people, even if, even if they don't want his protection. That's a recipe for disaster. If you think about a principle that extended to most places around the world would be, you know, the violence because most countries are multi-ethnic. Uh, so this is this is a a dangerous uh, slope here, but you're right, the countries are very deeply connected. And I think, frankly, what he really fears is not what he has said about NATO and all this. It's that a successful Ukraine, a, a truly democratic, Slavic, you know, success story on Russia's borders would resonate massively through Russian society. It would show the Russian people there is another way. And I think that is really what scares him. Um, Ukraine has not done so well in that path either. A lot of corruption and so on in the you know in these thirty years. But uh, I think the Russian people. uh, It's hard in Russia to really give your opinion, Um, and so these public opinion polls you really have to discount. Uh, There is a very and they've also suppressed, of course, their own internet. So it's very hard to have real information uh, flowing. But 
Russian people are ingenious. They have devised ways to get around that state internet uh, through other types of social media outlets, and that's a very free and open, you know, debate happening. Uh, and you, they're also voting with their feet. A lot of people are leaving Russia. Uh, there's a huge brain drain right now. Uh, it was interesting. As soon as Putin made the announcement of mobilizing reserves, all the flights out of Russia were fully booked the next within hours. Wow. People trying to get out of the country. So this is the, it's a, it's a volatile thing. The other thing you're seeing, which is interesting, is that the even more nationalist Russians, uh, the pundits, the commentators, the social media, are now criticizing the Kremlin for, you know, losing. Uh, and so he's getting now critique from the other side, uh, those who think he should, he should go further and escalate even more. So that constituency, frankly, is a tougher one to combat given, you know, Putin's hold on power. So he is under some pressure at home. There's no doubt about it. And he's coming under greater pressure abroad, both the Chinese and the Indian leaders meeting with him recently, you know, in public said they had real questions about what he was doing. So uh, he, he is he's in a corner. Uh, let me, since you mentioned the Chinese, let me let me ask you, do you think we sent Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan to send a message to the Chinese to stay out of this? Do you think that was premeditated on our part? It, I'm asking you to speculate. I yeah. know that. Right. Uh, well, it's hard to it's hard to know. I think I do think uh, Speaker Pelosi has had a long history of support for Taiwan. Uh, yeah. And we do here yeah. in Washington, too. That's why I yeah. asked the question. The Taiwanese yeah. feel a kindred spirit with Washingtonians who are controlled by their national government but not given a voice. Yeah, uh, I, I don't want to digress, that. though. Let me move <laughs> on. How are the rest of, How is the rest of Europe? Are, they must be apoplectic. People like the Lithuanians must be just apoplectic about this. Do they, do they think that is the feeling in Europe around the, the, the former Soviet bloc countries that this is a first step and that after Ukraine there's going to be more? Well, certainly they do. Um, I think the uh, one way to think about it is Putin just didn't just invade Ukraine. He really invaded Europe. He invaded everything that Europe stands for. Uh, and so even countries in Western Europe, even the Spanish prime minister the other day, Spain on the far western edge of Europe, not in danger of a you know a land attack from Russia anytime soon. Said Putin invaded us, uh, not just not just Ukraine and every and so the Baltic states they have bad memories of of, of Moscow yeah. uh, you know occupation uh, and countries on the eastern flank are very nervous because Putin said. Uh, we won't necessarily stop with Ukraine. I mean, he, he said it explicitly. So uh, we're doing a lot with our NATO allies to shore up those countries that are part of NATO. Ukraine's not part of NATO. Right. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it's going to be very hard, and I don't think we should think that this will be over anytime soon. Well, you know, uh, it's, it, it, it's uh, kind of classic military knowledge that uh, you don't invade Russia during the winter and winter is coming. Do you think that's part of, I mean, since, since it's your problem, I'm sure, I'm sure the winters in Ukraine are not much better than the winters in Russia. Do you think that, that, that 
that's really motivating them to make a hard push now because they know it's going to be even harder in a couple of months for them to to move forward? Well, it seems to, again, not knowing all the inner details, it seems to me what both sides are probably pushing to is some type of pause as the weather gets colder to sort of regroup. Mm-hmm. And uh, to to establish as much control and advantage as they can in in these months now before that happens. So if Putin mobilizes reserves, they're not coming anytime soon. They'll need to you know get organized. That right. they'll need to. So he needs some time. He's buying a bit of time now. The Ukrainians have made these advances, but they're also suffering horrendous losses. They they need a breather too. And I think both sides are going to probably try to use that time to reposition themselves for a fight that is likely to come again after the turn of the year. Uh, so that's why I say, you know, stay tuned, because I don't think this is going away anytime soon. And um, I was I actually met uh, the deputy defense minister of Ukraine on the weekend. He was here in, in Washington. And, uh, you know, he said, you know, you bet we're going to win, uh, you know, but he said, you know, we're going to, you'll see what happens next year. So, I mean, even he had said in public a statement about next year. So I think that's what they're thinking uh, toward is try to gain as much advantage as you can now, uh, regroup, and then, uh, you know, another phase of the conflict will, will, will come. Uh, how, how much credit should we take for the Ukrainian success? How much do you think, do you have any sense of that? How much, uh, uh, military aid from the United States has really helped these guys. I know that they that they give us a lot of credit, uh, but have we been? Do you think we've been the deciding factor in the battle, or is it this incredible, uh, you know, resistance put up by the Ukrainians? Well, it's hard to you know say exactly who's who's decisive. The Ukrainian determination not to lose their country to uh, Russian invaders, I think, is absolutely decisive. They have shown incredible will, uh, ability to absorb. You know, just you can't even believe the losses they've taken to their mm-hmm. their country uh, and their people. You think about the crimes of humanity, these mass graves, all these things we're discovering, uh, and yet they fight on. So absolutely dependent on that steely determination. On the other hand, I think on the margin, on the battlefield, the kinds of weapons that we have been providing has helped them, you know, make these advances. Uh, it has stopped the Russians in ways that they hadn't anticipated. I don't think the Russians had counted on such support. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, the, you know, Putin invaded Russia, uh, Ukraine in 2014. This is not the... <laughs> First invasion. Yeah. This has been going on for eight years. And since that time, we have been helping the Ukrainians build their resilience, help their cyber capabilities, do, uh, done their training. A lot of things that were, you know, not glamorous stuff or not on the television, but we're helping the Ukrainians prepare for, frankly, what's now happened. And our NATO allies have done much of the same. So I think some of the training, some of the preparatory, uh, tactical training, our intelligence support to the Ukrainians all through this campaign, including now how they could have managed these battlefield successes, that, that's been quite important, I think. So I, we, we are important to them. We are absolutely critical in many ways. But in the end, it's, of course, they're on the front line. They're defending Europe. They're defending 
frankly, the, the Atlantic Alliance, and they're not even a member of NATO. So it's quite something. Yeah, and, you know, I'm a student of history, so this, in my opinion, has been a real miscalculation by him because uh, the Russians are, the Russians who are, you know, Ukrainians uh, uh, by a different name, you know, they're, they're very closely related. They're famous for their resistance in the Second World War, things like Stalingrad. They, they were just, yeah. uh, they really broke the, bo- the back of the Nazis, and uh, I think it really was a miscalculation on his part to think that these people were just going to roll over. But let, let, Yeah, and let, let me ask you, what about his threatening to use uh, nukes? Is that uh, saber-rattling when he says all means possible? Is that saber-rattling, you think, on his part? Or do, do you think he, he really has the political will and intestinal fortitude to actually do that? Well, I think he does. I, th- you know, uh, the, the more de- I, I think the basic point I would make is I don't see Putin reconciling himself with the loss of Ukraine as he thinks about it. He doesn't want to go down in history as the leader that quote lost Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, and so what that means is, uh, if he becomes more desperate. Uh, one should not be surprised to think he will reach for a variety of other types of tools. He showed that this week. He did the, these, these sham referenda, and he called up yeah. his reserves. He, this is a multi-front war. It's not just a land war. There's a whole maritime dimension with the Black Sea, you know, about those grain shipments and how you can weaponize food and people and energy. and All of this is happening. Uh, he has lots of levers besides the military to escalate, to disrupt, uh, and to surprise us. And it doesn't have to necessarily be in Ukraine. So I think the more you see this desperation, uh, we need to be anticipate that we will be challenged in some other kinds of ways. Now, whether it goes to nuclear or not, I, I believe he is capable of that. But there are two dimensions of the nuclear. One is uh, destination of a nuclear weapon is sort of a shock, uh, which would have obviously devastating effect. It would cross a historic line. It would have lots of ripple effects. Um, but it's not going to obliterate the country of Ukraine unless it would be a massive attack. And frankly, Russia would suffer as much from that as anybody. Right. But the, the more immediate concern most people have is that either intentionally or unintentionally, um, uh, nuclear uh, power plants in Ukraine could uh, start to leak. And, uh, you know, the Russians have been shooting out of an occupied power plant at at Ukrainian civilians and infrastructure, just daring the Ukrainians to fight back. Um, The UN has been there very nervous that this could, uh, you know, leak. They they almost hit another one uh, with a missile, almost another, just directed almost on a power plant. Uh, So, you know, Ukraine is a big country, and it's got it's it's got lots of nuclear power plants. This is the place of Chernobyl. You know, the radiation leak of from the 1980s. This is this is the place where it happened. So uh, that fear is even more present, I think, for most people than the idea that somehow a military nuclear military strike would happen. 
And that would give him some political cover, too, wouldn't it, to be able to say, well, we didn't do anything. This is the fault of the Ukrainians that that the power plant is leaking. So, uh, yeah. yeah, But let me ask you, since you brought up the Black Sea, what about Turkey? What about the president of Turkey, uh, President Erdogan? Uh, saying that 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 he supports Ukraine now is that a big development? Well, the Turks have been supporting Ukraine through uh, military uh, weaponry, including these drones that have had such effect on the battlefield for a long time. Oh, so, Erdogan has been, you know, he's a very transactional politician. He he seeks the best deal as he sees it for his country, and so he's been. Talking to Putin, he has arranged lots of things with Putin, and then at the other time, he supports the Ukrainians. He has uh, been engaged in the Azerbaijani-Armenia conflict, which is also now, you know, again, erupted again. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then, uh, you know, steps back from that. And then he, uh, you can't get ships into the Black Sea unless you go through the Bosporus, which Turkey controls. And so Turkey is the, you know, as a choke point there over everyone in the world wants to get in or out of the Black Sea. So how they use that influence has been important as well. So uh, Turkey's a major player. It's a NATO ally, difficult ally, but really quite strategic. And uh, it, it'll certainly play a, a big role in, if you think about the broader uh, you know, set of disturbances, let's put it that way, that are going on in that part of the world. Speaking of NATO allies, uh, now I'm sorry I should know more about this, but uh, at the beginning, it seemed that the French were dragging their heels on their, you know, support or their involvement. Are they still in that position or are they stepping up to the plate? No, the French have uh, have joined in uh, full heartedly as a NATO ally. Uh, they're also supplying everything you know that they can together with many of the other allies. Um, they're part of the different coalitions that are discussing how to move things forward. Macron has talked to Putin, you know, to stand down. They're they're doing what they can. Uh, the NATO allies all met in Madrid in June and issued you know very tough statements about what this all means. Uh, I think there was a unity there you haven't seen for a long time. Um, and they have basically moved to a new posture on the eastern side of NATO, and France supports this, to um, to sort of beef up the presence. There will be more troops. It'll be forward, you know, deployment of troops, including U.S. forces, uh, activating more rapid reaction type of capability. Um, so there's a lot happening on the NATO front uh, in response to this. It's just that NATO is not a direct combatant, you know, with Russia. They're trying right. to avoid hitting NATO directly against Russia, uh, which could lead to many other types of uh, challenges, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, the president of the United States, President Biden, speaks before the United Nations. Uh, do you expect the United Nations to take a stronger stand on this? Well, do, you, do you think the United Nations, uh, after this week, after their meetings, uh, will will do anything different than, than than they're doing now? I think the UN at that political level is simply handicapped that Russia is you know is a veto wielding member of the Security right. Council. So 
it's very hard uh, at, at that level to really count on the UN. Uh, but, you know, UN agencies, the ones that people don't think about as much, do, uh, you know, very important work. If you think about um, the, you know, their agency dealing with uh, nuclear safety, atomic energy, that's the, those are the experts that when sent into this power plant to look and inspect it and to, uh, you know, and both sides agreeing to let people like that go in and make sure these things are safe or to assess how unsafe they might be. That's a role the UN can play. UN can play a role in terms of helping the grain shipments get out across the Black Sea through, you know, back to the rest of the world to people who are hungry. It can facilitate a whole range of things like that, usually through these other agencies of the UN, rather than thinking about the New York headquarters and, you know, the Security Council. That, right. I think, is just going to be blocked. Well, any threat to the United States? I mean, uh, Putin, again, has made comments that uh, for us to, to stay out of this, obviously, we're not giving them long range missiles, which I understand. It's no different than what we did when the Soviets tried to go into Cuba. But is there any threat to the, uh, of, of any kind of, in, in your opinion, uh, direct uh, retaliation to the United States? Well, at, at the moment, uh, they have uh, the Russians have not chosen that uh, step, uh, except in the unseen war we don't see every day, which is uh, in the cyber world. Right. Uh, I mean, th this is a world of persistent confrontations happening every day. We don't see it a lot, but, um, you know, Russia has uh, tremendous capabilities. You see how they manipulated our elections. They have done right. lots of things. There's no reason to think they won't continue to do that. We have midterms coming up. Uh, you see how they uh, hijacked certain kinds of social media in the United States, pretending to be, you know, black Americans or Texans or, you know, and, and, and just feed divisiveness and hatred. Uh, they, they have played a role like that. But more, more soberly, uh, you can implant malware, you can implant things in our infrastructure that are sort of lurking time bombs. And I have every reason to believe that they have already done that, as we have probably done to them. Yeah. Uh, if you think about the solar winds attack that affected so much the U.S. a number of years ago, that was the precursor to that was something called NotPetya attack in Ukraine. The Russians have been using Ukraine for years as sort of a laboratory for cyber operations attacking their electricity, their infrastructure, their grids. And if it works there, they take it on the road. So yeah. Ukraine, you know, helping Ukraine become resilient to that is not just a good thing to do. It actually helps us with our own national security to, so we can block that type of activity. So that's where I think the blowback has happened to the United States is in this kind of sphere that, you know, is very secretive. No one talks about it, but I think, uh, it really is, uh, you know, a frontline type of issue. Well, Professor uh, Hamilton, we very much appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Uh, before we bring on uh, Press Secretary Mandel, let me ask you: Is there anything that you want to add? Something that we didn't, that I didn't ask, that you want to, you want to add? Well, as I say, you know, on the, if you listen to all the talk shows and the generals and everybody on these shows, they all like to say, how will this end? 
And I think that's not the right question. The question is probably how will this continue? Uh, because it will continue uh, over quite a bit of time. And we have to be prepared for a Europe now that's just the farther east you go is turbulent and unsettled and sporadically violent. Uh, and that's the world that we're facing uh, and together with our allies. And we have to be now prepared for that world. We're not going to go back to some other era. Uh, This is a new type of age of disruption, basically, and it really challenges us all to think harder about the role of the U.S. in Europe and with Europe uh, as we go forward. So uh, it's it's emblematic of a big, much bigger set of issues. It's not just about a conflict in Eastern Europe. It's something bigger. Well, that's a perfect place to leave it with you, and I hope as this progresses, maybe we can get you back on the show in the future uh, to talk about some of those other issues. But we thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, especially now when this is on the front burner, to be with us today. So thank you. Uh, uh, and, and yeah, and please enjoy the rest of your day, and, and thanks so much for being with us. Okay, pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much. Uh-huh. All right. Okay. Now we're going to bring on uh, former press secretary Mendel. We're going to discuss what's going on in Ukraine uh, from the Ukrainian perspective. We learned a little bit about what uh, the Russians, uh, you know, how the Russians are dealing with this. Uh, let's talk about how the Ukrainians are doing this with uh somebody that really knows um, President Zelensky and uh, the Ukrainian people. So we have Yulia Mandel, who was the former press secretary uh, to President Zelensky of the Ukraine, and she's just written a book uh, called The The Fight of Our Lives, uh, Ukrainian Battle for Democracy, and what it means to the world. So can we start right there, uh, Ms. Menzel? What does it mean to the rest of the world, this fight in Ukraine? Uh, well, Senator, thank you for uh, giving me your platform. Uh, this is a very major fight. This is the fight between not Ukraine and Russia. This is actually much beyond uh, these uh, geographical and political positions. This is the fight between democracy and autocracy. And this is the fight where Ukrainians are sacrificing our lives. Uh, just to stand for the value of our values of the free world, for the right to choose, for the right to live in democratic country, for the right to join the West in many ways. And democracy must show that they are stronger than autocracy, because if democracy loses, this will mean, you know, so much for the world order, and it will mean that dictatorship wins again. If we feed Russian imperialism, then it can cost a lot to the whole world. Well, you know, I think we're all amazed at the uh, resilience and the resolve of the Ukrainian people. They've just been um, amazing. We just had uh, a senior fellow from Brookings who... who, uh, uh, is in, in charge of studying this part of, of Europe. And he said that the Ukrainians have, have just a lot, suffered 
immeasurable losses that we don't even know in the Western world uh, what the Ukrainians have sacrificed at this point. Um, um, where do you think they get this Senator, resolved? Yeah, go ahead, please. Uh, well, Senator, I wanted to say that just uh, like an hour ago, I read uh, a news from Russian opposition media, like opposition Russian media tried to do some good job there. And they tried to refute the words of Russian uh, Minister of Defense, who said that there were over 80,000 of Ukrainian servicemen who, was, who were killed uh, by Russia mm. in this war. But they said that they counted 62,000. And this number is really very impressive, because we are the army that is enlisted from just ordinary men and people who decided to sacrifice, right? And I'm describing in my book, The Fight of Our Lives, that Russia actually returns all their sorrows from 20th century, from Second World War, from the genocidal practices, from the artificial famine. And that's why many Ukrainians still cannot believe it's happening, though we experience it on the ground and we see what's going on. And so many of our friends and relatives, they suffer. And we know so many people who die. Uh, We just must stop this war and we must stop it on the terms of democracy, not on Kremlin's terms. Do you have the feeling we've just seen President uh, Aragon of Turkey stand up uh, and, and vocally support Ukraine? We know that he's been supporting Ukraine in, in, in other ways, but do you see more support uh, garnering uh, for Ukraine and for democracy is 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 the support for Ukraine growing? You think around the world? Well, uh, thank you for this question. It's really an important one. First of all, let me say thank you to every American because being here in America, I see how important it is for ordinary citizens, like for the people of America, because they understand what is the value of freedom. And I think that Americans and Ukrainians, we both share the freedom as as fundamental value for the society. Now, but secondary, uh, let me say that, yes, we see the support from the governments of, of, of the United States, of the European Union, and of Turkey. Uh, if you ask me about Turkey and President Erdogan, he has huge influence in, uh, the part, in that part of the world. And he has established relations with uh, Vladimir Putin for a long time. And it means, of course, a lot that he stood up for Ukraine, because he has also, his people have connections with the Ukrainian people with the Crimean Tatars, which is the part of Ukraine. And uh, 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 Ukrainian peninsula Crimea was annexed by Russia. So here he participates and he provides the platform. But also, you know, we saw the speech of President Biden, and it means a lot for Ukraine because he was very vocal. He was very sound to say that United Nations uh, need to stand uh, for the major uh, chapters and to show that you know, he, he was vocal saying that uh, actually Russia became an aggressor and Russia violated the measure chapter chapter of the United Nations. Um, actually, the United Nations uh, were created to avoid annexation of independent countries, annexation of territories. And here what we see, the aggression, tortures, killing, murders. So this speech was really very important, and we hope that there will be actions after this and that Russia can 
actually be dismissed, uh, at least from the Security Council, because this doesn't make any sense, and that Russia can be held accountable after after Russia is defeated in this war. Uh, given what you just said, we know that the uh, United Nations is meeting this week and that President Biden uh, is addressing the United Nations. Do you expect the United Nations to uh, do something differently to take maybe a more uh, aggressive stance uh, against Russia? We know that that's hard to do because the Russians are on the Security Council. But uh, do you do you think the, the, that the United Nations is moving to be more supportive of Ukraine, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, thank you. I, I mean, uh, Ukrainians understand, you know, what, what the, uh, this uh, type of bureaucracy means. But this is like when we cannot put uh, bureaucracy above uh, reality. And if the United Nations want really to show the result, they actually need to step in and to follow to the rules that uh, were accepted for creation of uh, uh, the United Nations in general. Uh, so uh, let me say that, uh, you know, I think that all Ukrainians uh, applauded uh, when uh, President Biden um, said uh, that uh, we need to follow uh, by the rule, uh, not by the power of uh, one uh, nation, right? Um, and he said that we are actually the earths of the history and uh, we need to uh, resolve, you know, uh, unmistakable re- resolve that nations of the world are united still and that we stand for the values of the UN Charter. So this is... Uh, you know, uh, it, it's very important to understand that if the United Nations cannot follow the major uh, chapters and the major rules that they uh, accepted to avoid the war, and if they cannot stop the war, then what's the point of the United Nations? Um, this is when there is the call, and today at, at 4 p.m., the Ukrainian president will have the speech in the United Nations, and this is the call for the United Nations to be more active and actually to expel or to limit the country that is behaving as a terrorist and that is actually returning us to the horrors of the past uh, uh, from from equal participation in the decisions of the United Nations. Well, you were very close. I want to change the, the, the focus a little bit. You were very close to President Zelensky. You were his press secretary. And I think Americans see him as an enigma. We really don't, you know, he's a surprise, you know. And and we think in history that there's been people that have been drawn to exactly the right place in history. For uh, for Americans, it's Abraham Lincoln who saved the Union. Uh, For Europeans, maybe it's somebody like Winston Churchill. Who, who saved uh, uh, Britain during the Second World War. Is, is President Zelensky, is he the perfect man for the job? Has he found himself in just the right position at the right time? Well, Senator, uh, in their book, The Fight of Our Lives, I'm explaining this tra- transition from Zelensky comedian to Zelensky a statesman and President Zelensky, a leader of the country in the war. And I must say that working with him for 25 months shoulder to shoulder, 
I saw how much he was underestimated because of his major image of a comedian. Um, in fact, he is a lawyer by a degree, and he uh, really built a huge uh, business in Ukraine. It's actually the empire of humor that was popular not only in Ukraine, but on all post-Soviet states. And uh, this took enormous, enormous attempts because Russia was trying to ban his business. Russia was stopping his performances, penetrating into information and entertainment spheres in Ukraine. And you cannot, you know, just be funny guy and, and build this uh, huge empire and lead this huge empire. So I think there, there he developed as a leader, but also working with him, I must say, he's such a hardworking person. Like literally even his biggest critics, they understand he's so dynamic and so hardworking. He can work 24-7 in, in, in times of crisis. That's why he drinks enormous cups of coffee. And that's why, you know, he used, before the war, he used to be addicted to sports. Literally, he was starting his day only from the gym or jogging, even if we were going uh, in the trip abroad or going to Donbass. I'm sure that you know, Senator, that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine for the first time back in 2014 right. in the eastern part of Ukraine. And yeah. we were traveling there. And, and I saw him actually going to the front lines just to handshake with, with the people, or with the soldiers who were there. And I saw when the shelling was starting and his uh, uh, security, personal security, didn't allow him to go there. But I saw how he fought that, saying, I'm a leader. I need to be with my soldiers there. If, if I am a leader, how can I escape the threat? And he was going to the zones of shelling. So that's why I must say he was underestimated. But when he was offered to leave Kiev, I was really surprised that, you know, he was even offered that for the reason that I knew he would stay with the people. He always repeats that politics must serve people. And that's why people prized him. And he did like this huge contribution of staying in the country, uniting the nation and uniting the whole civilized world to stand with Ukraine in this crucial fight for our very existence. You know, I, I mean, it absolutely uh, appears to me that he's the perfect, you know, that he's done a, just an amazing job garnering support for Ukraine, as you just mentioned. Uh, and that's been so important to the effort. I really, you know, I really think he's one of those people, and this is my personal opinion, that's found himself in the perfect place at the perfect time. Uh, and, and I can't imagine that anybody else in that position would have done any better than, than he's done. But let me ask you. That's as, a very as, good thing, by the way, and I agree fully with it because we were thinking if we had uh, another president, <laughs> we were thinking that probably anyone would leave. So yeah. you were saying just you know perfect, perfect uh, explanation description of the situation. Well, let me ask you, as uh, you know, Vladimir Putin, it, it, it seems that he has no limits, and this week he's come up with a couple of really draconian. Uh, uh, you know, new maneuvers, one of which is to call up 300,000 reservists, which is is more than the original invasion force, and also uh, these referendums. Uh, how do you think, mm -hmm. do, you, do you think this will stiff, especially the referendum, that, that, that really bothers me, because we know it's going to take time to get the troops together, but 
But did, will this stiffen the resolve of the Ukrainians, you think, these, these fake referendums that he proposes? Yes, uh, that's a very difficult situation. Let me explain to the audience that uh, Russians want to uh, hold fake referenda in the occupied territory of Ukraine, which right, right now is a little bit less than 20% of Ukraine. And in this way, they want to say that now these are Russian, territory, Russian territories, and now if we try to gain, regain these territories, they will say that we are attacking Russia, and this will justify any measures that you know Putin can can take, even many maybe some kind of nuclear uh, uh, weapons uh, usage, which is really very and very scary. Uh, Putin behaves as if he is a monkey with a grenade, and I'm sorry uh, to say this, but this is true. And uh, I know that he is a, has a very outdated worldview, and he doesn't really understand the world, uh, uh, which, which went really very far with the progress. He didn't deliver any kind of results in Russia. Russia just stuck in Soviet poverty, and it's just going back and back with degradation. That's why he tries to show his power in aggressive uh, manner, uh, trying to conquer the only the biggest democracy, which is uh, Ukraine right now. Uh, Ukraine is the biggest territory of freedom and the biggest democracy in post-Soviet region. Uh, we are afraid of uh, usage of nuke. This is very scary. And we see that the White House and President Biden really uh, show the concerns and understand that this can be done. But if they use it, you know, we hope that the NATO countries, they won't stand aside and just won't watch how it's happening. And personally, I'm going back to Ukraine. <laughs> God bless I, I you. Feel I, I, I belong to this territory and, you know, I, I need to hope that everything will be all right. So uh, right now we are looking forward what's going to happen with this referenda, but not, not Ukraine, neither the United States. Neither the European Union and Turkey are going to recognize this uh, referenda. Um, that's why we consider it Ukrainian territories and we are going to uh, do all the things to regain them back. Uh, how about the other former parts of the, the Soviet Union, the, the, the countries like Lithuania, uh, Poland, well, Poland was never a part, but, mm -hmm. but and Poland is a NATO country. But how about the other Soviet bloc countries? Are Do you see mm -hmm. them giving military aid to Ukraine? I mean, are they going to, you think any of them will send in troops to help Ukraine? Uh, well, majority of the countries that used to be under a uh, communist regime, like Poland or Baltic states, uh, they uh, are actually a part of NATO countries, and we see that NATO is expanding, uh, having Sweden and Finland, except in Finland and Sweden. Uh, there is one country, which is Moldova, uh, which is not the part of NATO, and which is moving with Ukraine together uh, to the European Union right now. They have also problems with Russia, because back in the 90s, Russia annexed part of uh, their territory too. And also the sa in the same way in blackmail Moldova with gas, energy resources, all of them, all these countries, they're trying to uh, get uh, away from Russia. And Poland, for instance, increased its army three times. Uh, Poland uh, is preparing with everything that is possible to help Ukraine, and uh, it provided a lot of resources. At the beginning of the war, there were a lot of military coming from Poland through Ukrainian uh, uh, western cities uh, to Kiev, 
when Russians approach so fast to Kiev. So we see a lot of rally support. And Poland, for instance, accepted around two and a half million of Ukrainians, which is like really a large number of refugees. Um, the European Union is helping. Uh, if we talk about other countries, we see doubts from, from some of the countries. Uh, Germany is really very, you know, late with providing help. But they do. But they do. They change their mind. And they also suspended the Nord Stream 2, which is very important for Ukraine. It changes the whole world order because the whole world order is now looking for other resources. Uh, they're looking how to ban Russian oil and Russian gas. They are getting, uh, many brands are getting out from uh, uh, Russia. I'm explaining even uh, in the book, The Fight of Our Lives, that people even were uh, 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 getting rid of Russian vodka, uh, which means that people don't want to have any product from Russia. And, uh, you know, Russia needs to to feel uh, that they are behaving, I'm sorry to say, but they are behaving like Germany in during the Second World War. They just try to expand uh, somebody's Putin's ego, imperialistic ambitions. And uh, this can lead really to a tragedy. And this will not be just a tragedy of Ukraine. You know, Putin is not going to stop. Um so that's why we ask to stand with Ukraine right now to try, you know, to uh, uh, defeat them in our territory, to get them out from our territory. And we believe that it is possible because uh, Russians already see that they are servicemen. They don't have, you know, good equipment. They don't have fuel. They don't have food. They don't have motivation. They are really in a very low morale and we have eliminated 54,000 of, of Russian servicemen, which is also a huge number. Huge number. And what about the, you know, Ukrainians and, and Russians are very closely uh, attached uh, in, in many ways. And lots of Russians have family in Ukraine, and I'm sure mm-hmm. it goes the other way as well. Mm-hmm. Uh do you have any sense how the Russian people feel about this? You know, we don't get all we get is the propaganda from Russia. Mm-hmm. So we always see right. smiling Russians saying, yes, we got to mm-hmm. get rid of the Nazis in Ukraine. But it, do, do you see kind of support in Russia waning for, for, for what's going on in Ukraine? Uh the problem is that Russians inside the country also get only Russian propaganda. Yeah. And um, this is really bad. So you're right that Ukraine had a lot of uh, ties with Russia for the connections. For the reason that we spent for over 74 years in one country, which was called the Soviet Union. So, yeah, you're right. A lot of families had connections in Russia, and I hear really bad things from the families. It's not like just one example, dozens and dozens of examples when people and families just collapse for the reason that people there in Russia, they believe in propaganda, and they say to our people, please wait, we will liberate you. (laughs) Like, uh, we understand that you've got Nazi regime, but we also know that there is a Russian opposition, and what I've heard from the people who left Russia and who are really Russian intelligence, you must feel that they were fighting Russian regime for all their life, and they feel like this is the last battle, and they are failing because they allowed this war to happen, and they have dictator uh, in Russia. And uh, what I've heard from them really struck me because they said that uh, we understand that Ukrainians have full right to hate us, 
and we just want to hear the West to hear that Ukraine must win. This is the latest what I heard, and this really, you know, heartbreaking because I understand that these people devoted all their life to be an opposition for a dictatorship, and they feel like this is their personal tragedy and the only way how they can uh, win if Ukraine wins. Well, we know that uh, you're very busy right now with everything that's going on, so I'm going to let you go in a minute. But you have such an important voice uh, on these issues. I want to ask you one last question, and that is, is there anything that you want to add, something that I haven't asked, uh, besides telling people how they can get your book? I, I somebody, One of my staff people has sent me the book, and I haven't had time to read it yet, but I promise I will because it's such an important thing. Can you tell us how to get the book, and, and is there anything you want to add? Thank you so much. I think the book is uh, uh, sold in different bookstores. I've seen it in New York and Washington, but uh, also it's, of course, on Amazon. Um, in fact, uh, you know, this is my personal story, and this is my story as a new generation of independent Ukraine. Through my story, I show what is the fight for democracy, the fight against oligarchs, the fight against corruption, the fight towards market economy, you know, and this all the personal fight that expands uh, to the whole fight of my people right now. And I'm sure that uh, you will see it with my eyes and you will understand why we all stayed in Ukraine and why millions of Ukrainians feel like this country has a lot of value and it's worth of fighting for it. So the fight of our lives, uh, thank you so much for this platform, for the opportunity to talk to you, and thank you, Senator, for your attention to Ukraine. This means for us a lot. Well, no, thank you. Thank you for the work that you've done, and, and please know that, that so many of us in the United States stand behind Ukraine, and I think you're right. This is not just about Ukraine. I think the world is starting to see that. Uh, you mentioned how the Germans have, have, are coming around and the French have come around. NATO stands firmly behind you. And, and God bless every Ukrainian. I wish you all the best. We leave our show every week with a song dedicated to our guests. So this goes out to you, uh, Ms. Mendel, and everybody in Ukraine. Uh, here's an only but a good one, goodie from Destiny's Child called I'm a Survivor. Thank you so much for being with us. Have a good one. Thank you so much. You too. Now that you're out of my life, I'm so much better. You thought that I'd be weak without you, but I'm stronger. You thought that I'd be broke without you, but I'm richer. You thought that I'd be sad without you, I love harder. You thought I wouldn't grow without you, now I'm wiser. You thought that I'd be helpless without you, but I'm smarter. You thought that I'd be stressed without you, but I'm chilling. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their 